Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture and organised by Architects for the Space with the assistance of Rob Fain. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the Fin de Siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony, and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live, and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing, to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. That's a bit louder than it is an ombre. Um, good evening, I'll tone it down a little bit. Um, welcome to the um, earth-shattering event that is our first Negroni talk in our new premises which is Forno, to anybody who doesn't know, which is the bakery offshoot of Ombra and a new venture, um, which is open in the day and closed in the evenings for the time being. But um, it's become the home of Negroni Talks because we thought we could get everybody seated. But um, you've proven uh, us wrong on that one, so we're going to have to draft in some more chairs. But, um, yeah, so this is the first talk back for a while. We've done a couple of third-party ones out and about, and we're just about to head off to Glasgow to do one up there in about a week. But we thought we'd squeeze one in, yeah, just squeeze one in here. And it's something that obviously became quite topical recently, and it was something that we had on our list to do, which was a talk on fees. And uh, one of the things that um, we always thought we, we might come out of in a great talk was that it led to some, could lead to a discussion that could lead to some form of change. And I think this is quite a good one because. We probably are all going to talk about why we, we know and think what's wrong with fees. But the question is, what is the answer to actually enact some change by which we don't have to put up with it anymore? So I'm hoping tonight that we can, it'll lead to some sort of answers that could be followed up on. Um, one of the things that um, Rob and I set out to do, and Rob did the approach, was we did approach the ROBA and the ARB. But what happened, Rob? They said no. Which, well, they uh, said nothing. Well, they said nothing, yeah. They didn't even say no. So, well, we had one no. Okay, you had one no. Um, so, yeah, they're missing. We tried our best. Uh, I don't know what that says, really, but um, you can draw your own conclusions. Um, and um, so, yeah, we, we thought it was a timely one to do. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Right, so, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, Ombra's over there. This is Forno. Steve and Paolo uh, run both. Um, Ombra was set up 11 years ago. That's where we've done most of our Negroni talks. This could well be the main home of Negroni talks going forward. We might do a few more in Ombra, depending. Um, uh, and the idea of the events is to have a conversation rather than a presentation. So if anybody uh, feels they want to say anything, put the, you know, sort of wave, try and get our attention, we'll get a mic to you. Um, it's uh, the talk on the evening. I mean, we set them up with a kind of particular way that we think, right, let's tap the subject this way. We go for big subjects that we think are sort of being ignored, overlooked, or avoided. And we try and do them in a way that is kind of constructive, um, but, you know, with an element of provocation and trying to get to the nub of the problem. So it's only going to be as good as the contributions in the room. So I, I sort of encourage everybody to uh, not sit there and go, oh, that was a really shit talk. If only that had been said, because you could say it. So I encourage people to say it. Um, 
I can't think of what else. We're on, um, the, it will be recorded. We always record the audio as a live stream uh, um, uh, for our audio archive. Um, and we're live streaming as well. Um, so there's some cameras dotted around uh, for people who can't make it um, because we're trying to encourage that sort of national um, and maybe even international um, sort of debate. That's something we're trying to develop off the back of Zoom through lockdown where we actually do everything online. And we had some quite good talks online. Um, we're on hashtag Negroni Talks. All our events are on Forspace website. Hopefully, you'll see them popping up. Um, Rob does all our PR, so I have to give him a big thanks again for helping us do this and helping us set up the Negroni Talks. Um, and I think I'm done, unless I've forgotten something obvious. No, I don't think Good. so. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce the event. And Hugh and I are co-chairing and speakers. We're going to try and bring you your mics uh, as we can. Um, so, fees... Um, I'm not an architect, uh, and I don't know much about fees, but I think that I don't know if this event is going to need much kind of direction and chairing in the sense that I think a lot of people have strong opinions about that subject. Um, you know, we've seen news and headlines, uh, you know, just like scanning BD and AJ. You see plenty of stuff about um, practices struggling and rumours about um, undercutting within the industry um, and uh, architects maybe not being their own best friends, um, as well as, you know, and I think something we want to talk about as well is how clients uh, view fees and whether, you know, that is, becomes a problem, um, you know, whether it's a kind of a perception of the industry issue. We'll, we'll, we'll get into all of this. Um, so I'm going to introduce um, some of the speakers we have and hopefully they can uh, make themselves known because I'm not actually sure where they're all sitting now. So we have um, Angharad Palmer, who is a design director at uh, Lansec UNI. Is that how I'm saying it now? as well as a design review panellist for the Design Commission of Wales uh, uh, and the, uh, on the Brent Quality Review Panel. Yeah, yeah, I've been stalking you on LinkedIn. Um, we also have Eleanor Jolliffe. Um, you may have come across... Eleanor is uh, an associate at Allies and Morrison, but you may have come across her column in BD. Uh, and she's also recently written a book, um, uh, which is called Architect, the Evolving Story of a Profession which is very pertinent for tonight. Uh, we also have uh, Britta Sigelkow. Uh, Britta is an accredited professional coach and consultant who runs Think Build, uh, which works in areas of leadership and business vision and strategy, specifically for architects and designers, if anyone's interested. Uh, and we also have some members of the London Practice Forum. Can you put your hands up if you're a member of the forum and have suggested that you're going to be speaking tonight? Yeah, we can do... Yeah, that's all right. We'll get, we'll get involved. Okay. Um, so, because I don't know much about this, um, I am going to start tonight with a few words that I've received from other people, if that's all right with everyone. It won't take long. So, first of all, I spoke to Amanda Bailey. I don't know if you know Amanda Bailey, but she used to edit BD magazine. She's also one of the authors of the Developer Collective, which is encouraging architects to become their own developers and therefore become more profitable. Amanda says... Architects are always under pressure to cut fees because they live in a competitive market environment. They sometimes forget this. Those that can prove value will charge more than those who can't. Many clients in the private sector will pay uh, more for a better service and smarter thinking. Some architects cut their fees and moan endlessly about it. But in the bad times, firms will cut fees to keep the office busy. I don't know if there's a few nodding heads that agree with this. I also spoke to a senior practice principal, who shall go unnamed for the evening, 
because he was quite uh, uh, bold in his uh, words. He said, undercutting has become a real issue in the last 12 months. I think we have lost the last eight competitive bids on fees, even where it was evaluated on 70 to 80% quality and 20 to 25% on cost. Practices have been going in at 35 to 80% cheaper than us just to get a foot in the door uh, or to try and secure later stage delivery work with the contractors on projects we have spent years designing and nurturing. Totally outrageous, and I would question where ROBA is on the issue. Tough, time, tough times ahead, but most architects are clearly very stupid or clueless and will probably go bust. Uh, and then the last person I spoke to tonight, sorry, this is really doom and gloom, but we'll, we'll, we'll lighten it up later. The last person I spoke to was Jason Boyle, who appropriately runs a podcast called uh, The Broke Architect. Uh, uh, Jason, we did invite Jason to come down and speak, but he's based in the north, and he said his fees wouldn't cover the train fare. That, I mean, he, he said that as a joke, I'm sure. But he also... <laughs> he'll be listening to the podcast, so um, uh, Jason, I understand that was a joke. But he did say, few architects like to talk about profit, but 99% love to moan about how low fees and late payments... Um, so what do other professionals make? McKinsey Management Consulting makes 35% profit. Law firms, on average, make 40 to 50% profit. But what about architects? Most make 10% prof profit, which is not healthy. Why is this lauded as okay? Someone should tell future architects in school that this is not okay. The way architects come into the profession is all wrong. We have a wrong mindset at the very beginning. Architecture is a business. A client pays you money to design something. So, and sometimes oversee a building. It is not a vocation. Some people may agree with that. Most of us are broke architects because we are taught that profit is bad or don't know how to run a business. When setting fees, instead of aiming high, we go low. Why do we act like lemmings, running off a cliff, committing financial suicide? We have the wrong mindset, we are taught it, and we are conditioned to accept it. If you want to know what is wrong with architects, it's the architects themselves. So with that in mind, I'm going to start with um, Eleanor, um, who can maybe perhaps teach us a bit about how we got here in the first place. Is one working? There we go. Um, so when I was researching for the book, People, architects have been moaning about fees all the way back through to ancient Greece. There's records of how much architects were being paid. Um, at that point, though, architects were sort of a master builder role. So they're being paid like a craftsman or sort of a technician type fee. And then you start, I'll speed up so you're not going all the way through from ancient Greece. But in the UK, we start having more of an issue around about the time that you start getting big building booms and the construction industry commercializing, um, where you start splitting off into, you get extra layers of management in things, and the role gets less and less comprehensive. Um, and then there also comes an issue post-war, where you have um, a lot of public architects working salaried roles, working for local authorities, um, competing in a way against private architects who were normally sitting behind their brass plaque. At that point, they weren't allowed to advertise, so you had to sit and wait for the work to come to you. And 
post-war, the government was building a lot, but nobody else was. So a lot of people were really struggling then. And there became a big tension within the profession. Um, the reforms of the 80s and 90s, when architects were all privatized, um, because there was no competition on fees, at that point you had RIBA fee scales, that became illegal um, because it was seen as uncompetitive. The Mon Monopolies and Mergers Commission got involved um, with professional fees all over. Um, and that sort of led us to the environment we're in. The idea was that competitive fees would drive innovation and would drive people to be more competitive, to compete for services, to do more. Um, the undercutting has happened instead um, because it's quite a saturated market, I think. And the increasing numbers of consultancies and other people that are in the construction industry as well as just architects have contributed to that as well. Um, in a nutshell. <laughs> Okay, um, oh, that's loud. Um, and Harrod, your kind of client side. Um, <laughs> don't make you, well, you don't, don't hate you. Okay, so, um, yeah, tell us a bit about maybe your perception from the other side. Yeah, sure. Um, I've got quite controversial uh, kind of view on this, and also I just want to be a bit positive today as well, because I think we could just easily get down in the dumps about fees and... You know, so I'm a chartered architect. I've, you know, worked for many practices in the past. And then I think I've been client-side for nine years now, which is, like, actually quite substantial. And I hadn't realized till I was on the train on the way here. So it's, it's quite a long time. And um, I feel like in terms of fees and self-worth of architects and being able to kind of demonstrate our value, I think, to developers and clients, I find a huge issue with Reba's... Um, plan of works and I feel like with this kind of linear way of approaching projects um, we're never really going to be able to really truly in this kind of new era that we're in kind of um, demonstrate and use use our kind of time efficiently um, I feel like projects creative projects that we work on don't really follow that linear line. I feel like these days we look at technical details that we might look at kind of later stage, kind of post, kind of tender, post-tender stage. We look at first day, we look at the carbon impact. Um, we look at people, we look at community, um, all, all kind of things that we might traditionally look at in a linear line. We, we need to do much, much earlier um, at kind of early project stages. Um, I feel like we need to use architects' ingenuity and innovation, storytelling ability, um, and also kind of technical nows to really help the clients. I kind of, even pre kind of REBA stages, really understand the brief and nail it because I think part, part of the challenge um, with myself working with clients is the client doesn't know what they want. I know what, what I want, but I think, you know, working with so many other development managers and people who've never been architects, they go into a, um, a project quite blindly. We write a brief, but it's very hard to nail that kind of brief at early stages. So I feel like we, we need to be much more stringent and use our kind of creative abilities to help clients at early stages to really nail that brief. And I think after a period of time of working on that brief, that obviously needs to be also a fee associated with that. I would never... I would never advocate free work that, there. I think it needs to be an additional kind of part of the Reba work stages that's recognised. Um, and that, I think at that stage, once you've kind of perhaps 
reiterated and iterated different ideas with a client, um, that's the kind of point where you might think, do our values align, you know, as a practice in terms of our self-worth and what we believe and stand for? Does our client align with that? Um, you know, through that kind of briefing stage, are we too far apart? Will they look after us? You know, will the fees be, be given to us at the right time? And um, it might be at that time where you just think, okay, it might be time to, you know, look, look elsewhere. Or you do continue on that journey together. But I think there's just, we just jump into projects too, way too quickly. Um, and also I've been looking at um, other industries as well and how we can learn from them. So I work on really, really huge, massive behemoth projects that, you know, have timescales of kind of 25 years, kind of mixed-use projects. And they get stuck in the mud. You know, we, we, we write a brief and we have a kind of master planner. There's never much kind of diversification in terms of new faces, new people coming along on, to work on projects. And um, we, I think, for me to really help the architects bring value and also more efficiency to the projects as well, um, I've been looking more at kind of um, the principles of uh, kind of how tech um, industries approach projects and automation as well and how we can learn to kind of do more prototyping early stages and I, I use prototype in the sense that kind of at that brief stage of really kind of working through the clients kind of themes and principles of what they really believe in and applying more technology at that stage as well kind of really embracing it I think it, we're in a really exciting time where we can just kind of turn our hands as kind of these versatile people to, to embracing those technologies and get to um, that kind of stage where we all feel happy with, uh, you know, a kind of a brief or a kind of maquette of what the project looks like at early stages and then keep working kind of from micro to micro, micro to macro scales as you kind of move on through these kind of, kind of iterations of projects. And um, so I feel like if, if we did embrace more kind of processes that other industries um, utilize, we can maybe save more time, be more efficient, but also be more creative and be more fulfilled and have more fun, basically. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot more to it, but um, I feel like, yeah, in terms of fees, I'm not really going to concentrate too much on that today. I think there's like a much more kind of radical piece that we need to look at as kind of industry as a whole of how we approach projects. I, um, I wanted to ask a question, but I, I'd, I don't want anyone to think that I'm in any way shaming any practicing architects. So you don't have to take part in this if you don't want to. But I would like to see if people are willing to do a show of hands to say, have they ever done any free work or work where, you know, they knew it was a loss leader because they were sort of rolling the dice, taking a gamble and thinking this could really lead to something really cool and I'm just going to go for it. So I don't know, if, if, would anyone be willing to put their hands up? Got a few. Been made to. That's a, that, we'll come on to that later, I think. I think, there is, um, I think there is a big issue, isn't there, around um, self-worth. If you're giving your services for free from the very outset, maybe not striking exactly the right tone in terms of a business relationship. So I'd like to, from there, I'd like to come on to um, Britta and ask you, what do you say to architects about, you know, presenting themselves or, or thinking about their, their businesses? Thank you. So what... Um well, because I'm obviously a leadership coach and I call myself a strategic uh, thinking partner, I think for me, really, 
at the core of all this is sometimes a lack of leadership and a lack of strategy. So I think what I usually say to, to architects I work with is like, so, yeah, the key is to be uh, more intentional. So really do things with intent. And I think that starts, so when we talk about leadership, I think it starts in terms of the business leadership, having a clear vision, having, um, being really clear about your values, what you stand for, what you, where you're heading with your business, because that would inform all the details. And I think it goes back to, I think, all the comments we had before, is also, I think, if you know, and this is about the self-worth, but if you know what you stand for and your purpose, someone else will, will kind of recognize it. And I think that's also, if you work with a developer, if you work with a private client. So I think the key is really to be, um, first of all, be really clear about where you want to go to, what you stand for, what are your kind of skills, where's your starting point, where do you want to go to, but... And therefore, where you want to go to is also what are your kind of ideal clients, because that, again, will inform going back to strategy. And I think it's also being, I think, which was a comment in terms of being business-wise, really work with outside consultants. I think we've got marketing consultants, communication consultants. So if you can't do it yourself, get someone in for, for finances or do, do the training. But I think it's like you can't, um, if you run an architecture practice, you run um, a business. So I think that's, that's really one. And I think um, going, so, so I think there's something on a smaller scale, on the practice scale that you really, I think the key is be intentional, have a strategy. But I think in terms, and I think that was also what Anger had said, I think there is a bigger question, and I think this is probably where the RBA was mentioned. I think there needs, and I think, um, again, there is a lack of strategy because I think it's, it's a lack of strategy in terms of communicating the value of architecture. And I think it's, it's amazing if you think about um, architects. I mean, the key thing is built environment. I mean, it affects every single thing in your life, aspect of your life, and still there is so little public discussion around these aspects with really strong voices from architects, and I think that is something which probably needs to be driven from an institution like the RBA, and it needs to be a long-term strategy, and I think I was listening to one of these previous uh, meetings where, where the RBA was discussed, and I think the one key thing is there. The way I understand it, because they um, change uh, leadership every year. With, if you change leadership every year, you can't come up with a long-term vision and you can't up with a long-term strategy. So I think there's probably another key. So I think there's a sort of small-scale picture around like how you run your business intentionally. And then I think it's definitely the, the, the bigger picture in terms of the RBA. Rob, can I join in there? Sorry. I just, oh, like, oh, oh, just, just before you do, I just oh, yeah, say sorry, if anyone's yeah. interested in the talk that Britta referred to, um, it's called I'm So Bored of the RBA. <laughs> Available on all major podcast platforms. Please. Yes, agreed. Um, I just, I just, I'm quite astonished by how many people have done free work because I just like, completely uh, refused to take on any free work. I uh, haven't done for years and I was kind of forced into it when I was at Pocket Living because it's just the kind of environment I was in. But um, I just feel like, what do. <sighs> I think there's so many different ways of getting to know a client and demonstrating your worth without having to do free work. So haptic, 
um, are really good examples of this and so many others in this room as well. Um, so it's just really on a really very simplistic level. I think if you do free work, you're undercutting your friends and your peers. Uh, do other professions do it? I doubt it. So why should we? And I feel like if you're doing... The times when I've got to know architects um, to kind of, you know, give them fee-producing work is that, you know, invites to their site visits, very simply, as Haptic did recently, to see one of their, you know, sites, um, construction sites. Um, if you're doing something already with your team, it's a great time to kind of expose your culture and how you approach your practices and um, your projects. So Gort Scott used to invite me all those kind of nine years ago to their... Uh, kind of lunch and learns on Thursdays and we'd have uh, lunch from Dusty Knuckles and we kind of critique work together and it's such a nice way of kind of bringing clients into the fold and it costs nothing because you're doing it anyway and uh, yeah go on what do you want to say <laughs> hold on a second it's, it's for the podcast I just want to re respond because you're calling us out and that's fair enough but it's it's so complex what does free work mean Quite often it could be like, like we did today, we did two hours of free work for a, for a big job. First, we're all doing free work in this room as an architect, because at the moment you're bidding for a GLA ADAP framework, you're doing free work for like four months yeah, or public more. public sector. Ooh. So public sector is worse, worse than working with Landsec, you and I, probably not, you know. So we, we all do it, it's just we're on a spectrum and that, that's really important to understand. Like, yeah, how much free work are we willing to do? What's the re reward? So that's key. So I just wanted to... Um, I'm going to finish with the speakers and then I'll come back to the floor because there's already loads of hands going up, which is amazing. I just wanted to pick up on one thing that, um, that was just said, which is I, get, I personally get really annoyed because um, lots of people say architectural education should be more about business. And then they say, other people say architectural education should be more about marketing and communication. And then other people say architectural education should be about engaging with the public. And you think, well, at what point are you going to fit in designing buildings? You know, and I don't think, again, I think as we're saying, I don't think this um, happens in other professions. You know, and I don't think if people say in medical school, they should be, you know, they should be briefing um, doctors on how to be kind of financially successful. So I think... You know, I think there are, you know, I think, you know, as, a, as an industry, maybe we could be solving those um, questions or inside practice. But I just wanted to go to Agnieszka, uh, uh, another haptic person, to kind of, maybe how do you approach these kind of troublesome issues of fees? Well, I guess, I mean, yes, I do work at haptic, but I've also, you know, worked for myself as well. And I, I, I do, I kind of want to come back slightly, sorry, to something that's kind of close to my heart, which is that I think the RIBA and the ARB should be advocating for us much more. Um, I'm very pleased that the current RIBA president is, you know, not an architect in some ways. It has a kind of a more a broader and, and a maybe slightly different view of, of, of what architecture should be. Um, but I do feel like we've been slightly let down, you know, in that way from, you know, as, as, a, as a profession. Um, and, you know, I was sort of talking to a few people about the RIBA kind of, or well, the fee scale, the, the little yellow book that we used to be able to go to with our, you know, to our clients with and say, look, here's the, the curve. <laughs> you know, this is the project. This is the type of project. This is, you know, the, the fee. Um, and be able to sort of, have the backing in a way of something that was written that was, you know, 
other people were also using and the, the fact that that got sort of abolished we kind of ended up a bit you know rudderless I guess um, so I think that that advocating aspect I think I wish was much stronger um, that's really yeah I thought, I thought it was interesting that um, I went to Simon Orford's goodbye and see, you know, and see you later folks um, event at Reba when he was wrapping up being president. And he listed loads of amazing things that he'd achieved in two years. But he also felt the need to say, these scales aren't coming back. Yeah. No one asked the question. He just felt like he needed to say, but we're not doing that bit. Just in case anyone like, comes to me after this speech, we're not doing that bit. And I don't know why he felt he had to say that because there was no pressure no one was no one had a banner up um, but obviously he felt that that was maybe on people's minds and he just thought it's not going to happen I mean, guys after all these years yeah. it's still on people's minds you know i think 2009 it was kind of finally kind of abolished as even a guideline yeah um, so there really is you know isn't much for us to sort of um you know be able to kind of share and and, and agree and also part of that maybe that public bringing up the whole profession as was outlined before saying that there is a value uh, you can just pass the mic over if you'd like to tim who i know has some thoughts as well on fees i do i in fact i had so many thoughts that i wrote i got my rant out earlier and wrote it down and put it on social media so but actually i was going to talk about and i mostly talked about um salaries which i think are an interesting they're the counterpoint of fees because as we all know, salaries are pretty um, meagre <coughs> compared to comparable professions. Um, and I guess the, it, it was prompted by us advertising for a part one position. And we said, it, we advertised, this was earlier in the year, we said it was upwards of 26,000 a year, um, which we thought was, uh, we, we checked it against the RBA um, salary um, survey and it, so it was above London living wage at the time. We're aware it's gone up since then. Um, <clears throat> and obviously, as LPF members, we're obliged to pay the min as, as a minimum um, London living wage. Um, but people were calling us out and saying, you know, is that really enough to live on in London? Um, it's not enough. It's, uh, I think someone des described it as unethical. Uh, and so we turned off the comments. Um, but then actually, it kind of prompted us to think about, is it actually enough? And as I kind of started comparing it to uh, what doctors and lawyers can expect to earn when they leave uh, university, and it is quite a considerable difference. And it's a difference that widens through our careers. Um, now, this is about fees, I think, but I think the salaries are kind of, um, they sit alongside um, each other, and I think a lot, most practice owners I know would love to be able to pay their staff more, but, and the reason that we can't is because our fees are low. But I think the, I remembered that instant because I think it reveals a mindset that we recognised in ourselves, which is looking sideways rather than looking kind of up at what... So we were looking at, like, what are other architects' part one's earning rather than thinking about, well, what should... You know, what are they worth? And I think sometimes we get trapped in the same thing with fees... Um, so, yeah, I think that was my, those are my thoughts on it. Which no, is... I, I think it's a really interesting point, and I've seen these, um, if, you've not, if you're not on social media, you know, God bless you, you've got a better life than me. <laughs> but um, I've seen these conversations going on, and particularly, you know, there's, organ there's groups like um, Future Architects Front and the Architects Union who do call out people on low fees, um, sorry, low salaries, 
And um, you start to see in the, the comments, more people join in and they sort of say, well, look, I'm running a practice. I can't afford to pay these people any more than this. That's literally all I can afford. And then obviously the activists are like, well, that's still not good enough. You know, that's still not an answer. So there's a, there's a clear disparity there, isn't there? Well, I, yeah. And I think actually what they're doing has been really effective. I think it's been the most effective thing because as practice owners, you then have to look at yourself and say, well, like, like I'm doing now, is it, is it enough? Are we doing the right thing? And if we can get everyone, and I think as we're, when, when you sign up to the LPF, as I'm here representing them, we sign up to a kind of code of conduct in terms of um, not, um, uh, uh, not allowing um, unpaid overtime, um, good employment practices. Um, Russell will probably know them better than I will, but um, we, we've signed up to it, so we're doing it, definitely. Um, and um, it's, it's, That's kind of self-initiated. Yeah. A group of architects just... Yeah, but you know, if, putting, if, that, if, putting if, that pressure on themselves, no, no outside force. Yeah, but I think, well, I think it's, I think it's an important thing to do. And if a lot of the, a lot of the undercutting is empowered by exploitation or low pay, and I think starting to call that out, the 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 the, the anonymous salary survey came out today. I think it's quite interesting. Um, so if you start to kind of cut out those kind of poor practices across the industry then you can start to kind of chip away at the low fees, one would hope. Uh, yeah. Do we have some other London Practice Forum members who want to chip in? Oh, oh, we've got another person who wants to chip in. Hi, I'm not a London Practice Forum member, but um, I just wanted to talk to your point on education, Robert, and, uh, you know, architectural education shouldn't necessarily be a business education, and it shouldn't necessarily be a marketing education. But um, ideologically... Architectural. I mean, I'm sure we'd all agree that we worked harder at university than anyone doing any other degree. And it starts off as a kind of ideological thing that our time, the, the relationship between time and value just isn't established. So it kind of starts off at, at that point, um, and that's kind of then, then bleeds out into, into our profession where design is not kind of uh, quantified in the same way that, that other professions quantify their time. So, you know, a, a lawyer will quantify their time that, that, you know, every email costs something, every hour that they spend doing something costs something. But design, how do you explain to a, a builder or a developer that, well, I spent five hours on that because I, I spent, spent three hours thinking about it and I, I did some sketches on a piece of paper. Um, so ideologically, we start off on the wrong foot. Um, and I mean, if I can go on to another point quickly. Um, <laughs> so um, I think there is something that could be done um, realistically now, which is around... Um, protect, we have protection of title. Uh, protection of function is kind of a, an ugly conversation in uh, sort of since... Uh, anti-competition conversations started and and, um, and fee scales, but I think it's not a very sexy conversation. But there's a there's a conversation around competency, which is de facto protection of function. So the RIBA could say that uh, a a certain 
certain standard of competency is required on every project, and actually, the 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 people who have competency are architects. So it doesn't need to be that an architect um, is required on every project, um, but that there's a certain standard of competency required on a project, and that you know that's going on. That conversation is going on in if you speak to building control officers and if you speak to um, uh, contractors. There are lots of conversations going on about competency, and we're missing an opportunity to say we are the competent people, and therefore our place in the industry should be valued higher. Uh, and the last final point I'll make is um, there's a wrong metric in the industry, which is that fees are linked to construction prices. I, I have no idea how that started, but Imagine a world where fees were linked to the value we create. You know, there, there doesn't need to be a link between our fees and construction values, but the, the value that we create on a project, I'm sure if we all think about, you know, the, the, uh, the piece of land that we got at the start of the project and what the developer sold that for at the end of the project, and our fees were related to the price that the contractor was paid, not what the developer earned. And I think that's something that we should all think about is, it's not, you know, why is that a metric and why is it not to do with value? And that's it. Thank you. If anyone else makes three points on the microphone, they'll be immediately chucked out. But that was really good. That was amazing. And we've got so much to respond to. Russell. Um, can I take issue with that last point, actually? Uh, I, I wish fees were linked to construction value. They're not at all. We, we are terrible. We link everything to our hourly cost, and we add a bit of profit on top. That's how we value it, and that's what we need to move away from. I, com I completely agree that we need to move to valuing the work we do more and pricing ourselves accordingly. Um, I got a text from my brother on the way here. He said, can you come out for a drink? I said, no, I'm, going, no, I'm going to a, doing a talk about fees. And he's, um, he came out of university, did an undergraduate degree in fine art, came out not knowing... I have no idea what he was going to do with his life. And he now earns three times as much as I do. He's like the, sort of, uh, the, the younger, better-looking, more successful version of me. I'm, I'm the beta version. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really telling that, that he's, bought, he's gone into a profession, uh, he's in advertising, right, and he earns this huge salary. And I've had a practice for 15 years, and over that time, maybe we've, I, let's say, we've, we've sort of got 15 to 20 million quids worth of turnover, in that time, we've built very little for a practice of our age. But if I look at the amount of planning applications we've done, the amount of projects we've had through the office, it is absolutely phenomenal. And all of that is generating value for people. But it's not generating value for us. We're making money. We're very, very good at making money, but terrible at making, uh, you know, making money for ourselves. I, it does really frustrate me, frustrate me when people say, oh, well, you know, architectures need to value th themselves more. It's not that easy. We had a part one years ago, and, like, we were building a practice, and she, and she said, well, you know, why don't you just win more competitions? Now, obviously. But I think we, we beat ourselves up far too much about this. I really think that the clients have really got... And this, I'm talking about the public sector here, because actually our, our problem has never been with... The, the private sector, the public sector just has to get its fucking house in order. Because I am fed up of sitting there for hour on end writing PQQ after PQQ, 
pissing money away on these pointless questions which don't deliver value for anybody but only spend my money and we're being asked week after week to deliver social value, climate mitigation, and get public engagement, all this stuff, yet inevitably the project always goes to the cheapest architect. And we have to stop this. And clients really need to understand that that is, you know, if they want us to deliver all these things and they want us to design buildings that last, that stand up, that don't catch fire, they need to spend more money on our fees. Um, and I don't know how we do that. Well, there is one way to do it, and it's the, it's the route that Harry has taken, and it's to become a client. If you want to make a difference in the world, become a client. Um, I guess one other side, you talked about the public sector. Sorry for swearing. I get, oh, yeah, no, fucking don't do that. Um, uh, you know, I think you're, you're, you know, you're right to levy um, some stuff against the public sector. I think also there's an issue with private sector clients sometimes who don't pay at all. And I've, lots of my clients have said to me in the past, you know, we're going to pay you, Rob, when we get paid. It's, you know, it's a, it's a dodgy time. And, I mean, that's scary to hear that, you know. And I think there are some uh, private sector clients that do that. I just wanted to come back to you, Eleanor, because, um, you know, I think in your book you sort of maybe postulate some ways forward for the profession, which you're not going to... You don't want to be held to, but, you know... Do you, do you see a way, potential ways out of this, even if they're even if they're pie in the sky? I'm just gaze into my crystal ball here. Um, yes and no. So, very quickly, the answer to the question of why we're um, our fees are linked to construction value. Way back, architects also used to be quantity surveyors or measurers, as they were called, and they generally got paid on a percentage of the stuff that they measured. So that was where that came from. Um, but in terms of future, I think one of the things architects are awful at is communicating the process. We're really snobbish about our profession, and no one wants to admit that we've spent three days arguing with an MEP engineer about where they can put the ducts, because it's not glamorous, and it's not what we want anyone to think we do. But actually, it's where a lot of the value comes from, because it's taking all of these complicated inputs and still making a really nice building. But the thing is, we tend to turn up to meetings with a lovely CGI or a picture of a building we've finished and go, look, and everyone goes, lovely, yeah, that looks easy. And so I think until we're ready to own the process and to acknowledge the work we're doing and communicate the process and the work that we're achieving along the way, I think it's going to be really difficult. Um, I also think, sort of linked to that, the profession history shows us going from being basically a master builder who designed things to a designer who now barely understands what we're building with. And, I mean, I couldn't hold a candle to some of the architects in the past. And I think the more we don't take ourselves seriously, the more we subcontract out design liability of the boring bits or the technical bits or the things we're less certain on, the less value we have, and so we can't really expect people to pay fees for the fun bits only. So it's all sort of linked in my mind. I hope that makes sense. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to the floor, but we're not giving up on our speakers, so don't worry. I've got, oh my God, I've got so many hands. Um, someone else got in there first, because they, they, they grabbed me uh, in the middle, but I'll, we'll, we'll get to everyone. So I've got a story like Russell's. One of my... One of my, actually, my cousin is a, 
studied geography at university, uh, same time as me at Newcastle. Uh, I'm sure we all, we, all, we all know someone who studied geography. Um, <laughs> they called it colouring in, and obviously he's now uh, a partner at Knight Frank, and he's earning you know, 10 times more, more than I am. And we had a beer the other day, and we were, you know, he was telling me about the latest commission he got from a client, a, a sale he made, um, 1.5% on, uh, you know, 10 million pound property. Um, and that made his year. And I was telling him about the 0.8% that I made on a similar size property. And obviously, um, that wasn't true because it was just uh, an hourly rate plus profit, as, as Russell's discussed. So I think that the conclusion and possibly the summary of how we can address this problem is that we shouldn't be looking at our fees as um, cost, time, uh, resource plus profit. We should be looking at value and a commission based. We should be going to developers with a percentage on the uplift that we, that we provide to them. So we, t we, we unlock a site and we take it from an um, a infill piece of uh, land that's worth nothing up to something that's got planning permission. And then even better, something that's built and they're selling it at you know, uh, apartments for one million or plus. And we need to go back to what is our value and a percentage of that value. In very hard uh, economics, we are, we are making huge amounts of profit for private developers and for local authorities. And we need a tiny percentage of that. That's all, that's all we need to ask for. Thanks. Thanks. Um, I think this really is, is just a question, and it was just responding to Russell's point, which is, I think, as a profession, are we in a position where we can just say no publicly? You know, when the local authority comes to us and asks us to read a 300-page document for four sites, of which we all try to undercut each other, um, to not be able to pay our salary, let alone our staffs, are we not in the position now where someone says, no, let's all not go for it. So the local authority are able to look at themselves and say, okay, how do we refine this? Because at the end of the day, they're all salaried, so they don't care whether two days before a submission they can pull a project after we've spent five to 10K working on that, work, on that, piece, of, um, that piece of bid, for example, so free work. And then the other part, I guess, to this is, as a profession, are we really thinking quite hard about who we want as our clients? I think it's so easy to fall into just doing a bit of architecture work, whether it's public sector, private sector, private extension, whatever. We don't understand, or many of us, anyway, start with maybe not quite understanding the impact of starting practice, of running a business. And we don't necessarily choose our clients in the way they choose us. They'll ask us to bid, no problem. But do we say no to enough clients, basically? Um, and I think, as a profession, we also need to look at ourselves and just say no more often. It's obviously difficult because you're thinking, well, I've got five, ten X number of people whose salaries need to be paid because they've all got mortgages. Um, but perhaps we don't dare I say, need as many architectural practices, as many businesses. Um, what does that look like for the profession when we start to say no more often? That's my... Oh, okay. Um, I had a couple of thoughts. Um, one's really kind of boring financial, but um, 
we had this lucky project that we've, we're, we're on now where the client said, oh, so when you sign the contract, which is, was last week, you can just invoice for the first half of the fee. And I was like, okay. Uh, yeah, it's working. Yeah. So we get like tens of thousands of pounds up front. And I was a bit like, oh, my God, we're going to buy those computers that we need. <laughs> it was a bit of a shock. But um, the point is, like, what, that, this was a private sector client, and it wasn't a design project. Um, but it made an in, it's going to make an enormous difference to our cash flow. And I am so sick of chasing money. And it, it means that what happens when you, the ca- you have an issue with your cash flow is that you think you're going to be okay with the fees. And actually, everything gets stretched out. You do more work. Um, and you, uh, you get paid months after you've done that piece of work. And that, in a way, kills you, because if you knew when that money was coming in up front, you'd be fine, and you could plan, and you could do the work, and you could do it on time, but you know that the client's going to make you do more work and wait for longer to get paid. So I think, I, think, I think the public sector really needs to wake up to that, because when you have to ask for what your purchase order number is, like when you've already done the work, it's just rude, it's like, you know, the first thing should be, this is how we're going to pay you, this is when we're going to pay you, and this is when it's going to happen. Um, because, because HMRC aren't waiting, etc. Um, and I think, I think the public sector really should be operating like that, should be operating like that private client that just goes, well, you're going to need to get the resources in place, so we're going to need to pay some money now. I know you haven't given us anything yet, but you've signed a contract. Um, and then I think, I think the other thing is, it would make an enormous difference if, uh, and I was speaking to a local authority the other day about their ridiculously long and vague ITT, uh, which wasn't clear about how we were supposed to enter something. And he said, well, of course, we have to do it like this because kind of that's our job. We need to prove that we're doing it the right way, you know, for our constituents. And it would be like, this would be so much easier if you just paid us to do that work. Like, if you just said, we're going to invite five architects, we're going to pay them that amount of money, and we can't ask them to do too much because we can't afford to ask them to do too much, then we would all be doing less. We wouldn't be doing all this nonsense. And then, and then you know, everyone would go, well, of course that's value for money because you've asked them to do a bit of work, and they've done that bit of work, and we've chosen the right architect for the job. I mean, like, why on earth, when this country's having a productivity issue, are we throwing so much work in the bin? I mean, this is having an effect on the economy. It's absolutely nuts. But I'm not sure who's going to stick their head up above the parapet and say, yeah, actually, it would be fine to pay people. That would be an all right thing, and it would still be value for money. Um, I think that the... Let's, let's think about some proactive things the public sector can be made to do. <laughs> I think, referring to what Tara is talking about, referring to what is talking about, there should be some rules. You cannot tender to more than three practices if it's going to cost them all 9K. Like the one that Tara's talking about with 10 practices all killing themselves over tiny, tiny things. It's, it should be illegal. That's all I have to say. Um, just a couple of points I wanted to make. Um, the, kind of picking up on something that has already been said. And I'm, I'm talking as a young professional. It has been just several months have, since I started working in the UK, so uh, forgive me. But um, since I started working, I'm completely amazed at how many people are telling architects what to do, what not to do, and how many people are giving you comments, um, correcting your work, and then the amount of time you're 
spending, not designing and not coming up with ideas, but actually, you know, putting, making edits in the presentations and sending out um, edited documents. I'm wondering if, if we extended the field of architect's responsibility, if we gave the architect a bit more space and we recognized it's something that Elena mentioned, that we actually make a lot of decisions, we have to know a lot of things, we have to um, talk to a lot of consultants, a lot of people from other professions, give us a bit of more space, give us a bit more time, and then it will lead to um, expanding the fees and rising, raising the salaries, but don't put five middle people in, in between us and the client or us and the project telling us what to do every day. The people who do not know how much time it takes to actually design things, to actually come up, come up with design changes, and um, if we make this, this, this chain shorter and more transparent, then maybe the process will be more effective. And I think the other thing is, um, as a recent student, recent graduate, I'm thinking it all starts when you're in your first or second year of undergrad and you go to your first job and you do not have a choice because as an intern, um, you, you cannot expect to be paid in you know, 95 percent of the practices all over the world because it's just the how it is done it's because people you, you can't expect to be paid you just come there you work there for three six months just to get this invaluable experience and everyone keeps telling you that you know you're not experienced enough you're not good good enough yet and I think it, it the roots are there right because we um, exit the architecture university after five years and we get used to the fact that working as an architect is actually, you know, 90% free work or you just get paid really little amount of money. So maybe we should start. And there is a lot of organizations that can advocate for professional architects for, or at least we can try to, we can expect them to do that. But no one can advocate for students, for architecture students, and explain to them how it actually works and that you should value money, value time, and how you should approach that, because you have 50 other people who will come instead of you and work for free. So I think probably we should start there. Although I guess um, the LSA is trying to make some steps towards getting people into practice sooner, right, and having almost like a sponsoring practice and maybe you see more of the real world at an earlier stage. Um, Steve? Yeah, I apologise to Anna for failing her to teach, teach you um, about the horrible business of architecture. But I hope we did get you um, um, equipped and armed with some um, good ways of talking and good ways of um, what Britta talked about earlier was in, instilling a, a feeling of intent, yeah? And I want to go back to that, what Britta said right at the beginning, intent, and I want to sort of almost in a roundabout way sum up somebody who talked, I couldn't see them up there, um, um, that I want to build upon intent on this person's point earlier, and then as a proposition, maybe table it to some of the speakers as a way forward. Um, 
What I found interesting about the point about how we might embed a fee within the end value is a model that is existing elsewhere, particularly on things like um, reuse, circular economy, climate change, and, and, and so on, where there's new modes of economies where we, we might start to embed fee or, or cost um, that gets divvied out through the process, or particularly on that end value. I, I, I think there's potentially a proposition there. And it's kind of twinned with, with one or two things about the architect's intent. Um, we were talking today in the office. Um, we've got some, some, some great staff we've invested in over the last few years who are very much at the forefront of trying to break down um, the weakness of QS work. In America, they don't usually use QSs, and we touched upon, I think Eleanor touched upon that, we never used to here. So we're, we're actually beginning to learn very quickly in the office how to actually sort of um, discern and, 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 and find holes in the QS work, which is actually saving, um, you know, quite a bit for the client, potentially. Now, to be rewarded for that, we've got an architectural fee based on all the things we've discussed. But we're beginning to think, let's take the QS role, let's take the project manager role, let's have the intent and propose to clients in the future that part of our fee is embedded in the result. Because if you've got that intent, that knowledge, that confidence, perhaps there's a proposal, maybe even a legislation, where you can actually say a worthwhile, in a worthwhile way that um, the architect's involvement in the process that adds value is measured and rewarded. A brief interlude. Has anyone not got their food? We've just got a few hands up. Is it, can you put your hands up again? Meat vegetarian? Okay, some meaty food on the way. Um, also, if anyone wants another drink, please do um, order it at the bar. This is meant to be a European cafe-style culture, guys. Come on. Okay, we have more thoughts. Um, I, I do have a thought, but... A, a quick... Hopefully, is it, is it going to be unpopular and Deeply. radical? Deeply unpopular, no. Just, just uh, on, on this um, having a... Uh, architects being paid in part of the value of the end end product, I guess. Uh, a, a short thought is, well, would you be prepared to actually put a stake in the project? Because presumably, if you don't have the risk, that's going to be a real impediment to any kind of credibility in um, getting any of the profits at the end. But uh, I, I was just around a few of the points... Oh, well, like a developer, like have capital. I think the point made earlier on, it can actually be a very, very small percentage. It doesn't need to be necessarily, you know, a return on your money. Fair. I, I, that was me being prodding, I suppose. But I guess I'm, I, as an employee, so a comment, but I do invite any practice directors to tell me to fuck off, what do I know? Language. <laughs> Uh, I, I guess I'm reminded of doing some quite a lot of feasibility work in a previous job for a big American developer who my practice was trying to court. 
And at the end, my boss said, you know what, for all the cost of the resource, we may as well, just may as well have just taken the whole client team to the fat duck for the same money. And it would probably have been more effective and more fun. And actually, on reflection, I actually think it would be less pernicious because actually what that does is not give away your one source of value uh, any food? Any food, people? Any food? Right. Sorry. Go ahead. No. Done. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Doing two jobs at once. But no, it's an interesting point, and I mentioned it very uh, briefly in passing earlier on, was that this book, Developer Collective, by Amanda Bailey and um, Gus Skolovich, is calling on architects to become developers because they have the skill set. And, you know, I've spoken to architects who've done all the legwork on behalf of their clients. And yes, the clients are taking the, the risk with investment, but they're kind of not doing any of the graft. Would you, have you ever come across anything like that? Well, not me personally, but it is something I'm increasingly interested in. You know, Looking ahead, how can I actually afford a mortgage, for instance? I mean, that's, that's I guess, is the other thing. It's like, you know, this isn't to lay blame, but there is a kind of a little bit of a question of, well, you know, architects, perhaps more senior architects looking at their employees. How long can you expect them to just survive on, even if, you know, I get, I get the challenges, I get fees are limited, but, you know, how long do I have to spend 70% of my salary on rent? Agnesha? So I don't know if this is going to be a provocation or not, but um, being a half uh, British and half Norwegian practice, uh, we have quite an interesting kind of, I guess, insight into how Norway uh, fees are structured. And um, everything is hourly rate. Uh, so it's literally number of hours, a predicted number of hours, and at a rate. And that is how all fees are built. And the rates are actually very basic. I think there's about two rates. You know, there's the kind of high rate and the lower rate. Um, but that's it. So, um, and when you're kind of coming up to the hours, um, you know, you've sort of agreed. You basically say to the client, uh, we need some more hours. It doesn't always work, but it is very much... Um, hourly rate based so it's quite hard to leverage a fee whereby you know you might be able to get a higher fee and then have like let's say uh, younger staff to deliver it or you might have um, you know you do it quicker therefore you keep more of the fee um, but it is maybe in some ways fairer because you actually literally are getting paid for every hour that you work That's it. oh hello okay Maybe a little bit provocative. Not all, not all architects are competent. It was suggested earlier, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> and I think also starting today, what you said, Rob, about you had an example of somebody said, we're nursing this design for ages. Other people are stupid not to see our quality. Um, um, and I hope they go bust. <laughs> I think more or less that was it. I was quoting someone else. I know you were, you were quoting somebody else. Um, and I think also sometimes it's, it's about this value. Now, whose value is it? And do we want to pay for maybe a bit of an outdated architect's ego? So what's in place here? And that's also the balance with fees and production. And it's like, because we put in all these hours when we study, therefore we should earn more. 
So what are you doing in these hours? Is it really adding to the value? Is it really answering to what the client wants? And I think sometimes we get a little bit carried away by, oh, we work so hard, therefore we should earn more. Can we work a little bit less? No, can we do two options instead of three? Um, is it necessarily to really align this PowerPoint to, to, the, to the T? Really, some people who look at our presentations don't care that much. So it's also the question, can we, can we do less? Maybe that's the lesson that we take from Miss Van der Rohe going forward, like not the glazing, not the steel, not that, but can we do a little bit less in, in our work and in our like, self-flogging um, when it comes to that? And also, working for nothing when you're an intern, it should just be illegal. It's just not. <laughs> Let's not do that. Um, so, I'm going to raise a point about sort of procurement routes and whether the harm of the sort of the, the design and build impact and when people talk about value on the industry. Um, I wonder what the harm is on the industry actually as people come forward through the industry and uh, as architects are held more and more further away from you know, construction itself. Um, you know, I work on public sector projects mainly um, and we work for contractors and it's quite funny when you talk about value because whenever we add value to a project it goes through a contractor and then through a project manager and the value, um, I'm not sure it's quite translated that the architect offered the value. Um, I think the contractor or the project manager offered the value. Um, and then yet, you know, we work on quite stringent contracts that there's scope in the project and there's compensation events and things like that. We adhere to the, the contracts and we issue extra fees or we, we issue compensation events. And whenever we do that, it's the architect wants more money. Yet, actually, all we're doing is playing you know, the game that, or the contract we're adhering to that that we signed up to. So I wonder whether the type of procurement route, especially in the public sector, that most contracts are going or have to go down is actually harming the industry as well in terms of the, the knowledge that will be in the industry in 10 years' time, for example, um, because of the role of an architect and their lack of involvement in on-site construction. Um, so, I, yeah, it's just a question of, I know that's been a topic in rebirth of presidential campaigns in the last couple of years, but um, I don't think it's quite got there. So, yeah, thoughts, I guess. Excellent. Um, yeah, I think there's obviously a lot of frustration within the industry. I think a lot of architects are clearly getting annoyed by the fact that, yeah, they can't live, you know, their best lives. They're seeing some of their other kind of, you know, friends and maybe former kind of university colleagues go on and do other professions and they can do all the things that we should be able to do in terms of spending time with family, going on, you know, great holidays and living great experiences. I think there's a number of key structural issues within the profession. And I think one of them is really thinking about actually going back to Tom's point around protection of function. I think title is all well and good, but actually I think we need to limit the amount of architects within the industry because I think there's actually a lot of us and a lot of us could actually do a lot more good in other areas of the industry. So there could be, you know, architects doing great roles as PMs. There could be architects doing great roles as interior designers, uh, interior architects, um, design managers, construction managers, places where actually we do need the expertise and the skills that architects have. There's so much focus from our side in terms of quality and delivering great places and buildings but actually, some of the people that we're relying on to actually execute that work don't have the same passion, they don't have the same skill, they don't have the same qualities and capabilities that we have. So I think there's so much more room 
within the profession and architecture actually is a little bit bloated and we need to think about that and think actually protection of function will help to reduce that in the short term whilst also addressing competency and raising the baseline so that actually clients and developers see, yeah, this is actually really worth paying for. And if somebody comes to me with a you know, reasonable fee, it's not in question because the competency levels are great and you're going to get an excellent service. And ultimately, from a social perspective as well, I think in terms of what it actually means to the profession in terms of having good quality architects who are not worn out, who are not burnt out, just think about what that could actually do in terms of the societal benefits that can come from that as well. Oh, I recommend people to step over to sustainability as an alternative. It's great. Just responding to Lamray, so we actually have a really small percentage of um, architects compared to the population in the UK. Um, and arguably, you, you can tell from our, the, the, the quality of our built environment compared to, you know, I, I'm half uh, Dutch, so, well, I'm married to a Dutch lady, I know that, and, and out there, it's it, the Netherlands, Japan, Italy have the highest percentage of architects. I think you can tell, you know, the quality of the built environment. And it doesn't mean they have practicing architects, but a lot of people have done architecture and gone into other jobs. I think that's what we should be promoting and incentivizing. That's what you're talking about, right? Not just going into construction and pre-em, but actually going into roles of local authority. If, I mean, let's have a politician who's an ex-architect. God, that'd be amazing. You know, let's have, let's have someone who's actually done a day's work being a politician, but, you know, someone who appreciates design. And that would be huge. And then just responding to this whole idea of extra services. So I'm... Um, uh, sustainability, you know, I've been in, uh, head of sustainability at my company, been in that for 20 years, and that's a clear win, you know, a clear, easy gain where architects can grab that. We understand sustainability holistically, we understand the value of that. We shouldn't be giving that across to Briam assessors or, you know, this idea of a sustainability consultant. That is holistic design, good quality design is sustainable, is regenerative. Um, we need to move beyond net zero. What is regenerative design? And only architects can provide that. So that's an example where we could go to clients and say, you want a sustainable building? We can give it to you. What's the value of a sustainable building? It's X million a year. Okay, we'll have 0.5% of that. Thank you very much. Okay, we are coming close to the end, but I know there are things that people passionately want to say. So I'm going to say, say it well, say it fast, go. Okay, well, hopefully this speaks to the last kind of three points, but, um, you know, in, in, in particularly in the design and build world, we're the creative end of a, an industry that doesn't really value creativity. So we need to identify what that industry values, and that is solving problems for them, that is ticking boxes for them, that is um, being competent and demonstrating that competency. And, and absolutely, as you say, you know, can we fulfill other functions for them can we be the um the, the guys who they come to for not just the architecture but the the sustainability for the project management for the you know do we need planning consultants do we um you know so you know we, we are competent and we are skilled and we are experienced in, in so many so many uh niches of the of the kind of construction and development world and we just need to leverage that. Sorry, can I, can I go? 
very quickly. We've got, we've got a point at the bar. Quick point. Right? We've got one over here from Oscar, but you go first. Um, firstly, thanks, uh, everyone, for your points. They've been really um, insightful. Um, I'm actually doing a PhD in a lot of these uh, questions at the moment, um, and I just wanted to maybe create a provocation. Is actually, I think it's all very well to discuss these terms of fees, but we also need to understand the context of the profession, that actually as much as we can increase the pie of income for architects, we still fall within the value of speculative property, um, that actually building itself is, is quite harmful for the environment um, in itself, and we need to kind of, I think, critically perhaps assess what value do architects fill in the marketplace day full stop, because I think for many developers and people with clients, when you look at the marketplace architects, a lot of the value is in the planning, you say, okay, I pay for architects to draw and I pay for them to submit my planning application. But for almost every other task, I can go to the building contractor, I can go to the surveyor. And I think that's a very real, you know, that's a reality. And I think um, we need to, I, I think it's really important to understand that context and to say within those confines, like how can we add value and how can we maybe distance ourselves from the very model of, of being procured under the value of property. Um, and the kind of NIA slash uh, rather pounds per NIA or however you want to kind of create that metric. Thank you. Oscar? Um, coming from a slightly weird position where I'm a supplier, uh, I work for a supplier, work for Vector Foil Tech, the ETFE company. And so part of my job is trawling through uh, planning websites, finding projects that could use ETFE. Um, and I'd like to contest the idea that we're all capable and competent because I've seen a lot of crap. I mean, it really is. There is some absolutely shockingly bad work on, on planning websites. So um, just to add a few numbers to, I think it was the third from last person who spoke, um, architects represent 0.7 out of 1,000 uh, of the population. Uh, UK construction market is worth about, well, was worth about 363 billion in 2022, which per architect, 42,000 architects, 8.6 million per architect, and some of them are terrible. So it gives you an idea, just to put it into context, of the kind of bounty that we're adding um, and that we're not getting remunerated for. So many people doing mental maths in their heads. I love it. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go to the speakers uh, to sort of wrap this up, and I'm just going to sort of say, give me one way, positive way forward, because I think that was the point, wasn't it, Steve? We were going to kind of come to have some ideas. So um, I think there will be there were lots of brilliant ideas, and probably Marius would like what's stopping you to to go ahead. And I think that's probably one thing. And I think goes back to what I said initially. I think it's it's um, things where you start at an individual level, at a practice level. I said the the idea just to say no or to to really um, think about your target client and become their kind of like go-to expert, learn their language, learn any, anything they kind of need to do. And I think the other one is like, again, going uh, on a bigger scale, the bigger picture. Again, I mean, there's so many architects here and, and we have the, the um, 25 architects uh, who are already kind of coming together as uh, doing collaboration why not they're starting and starting with some form of idea and strategy and again I think we have 
communication experts here get get people and get get the going and i think the thing is like you, those things need to it's all fine to discuss it amongst architects i think it's like to get the message out there probably to the general public or get the whoever you're kind of got your problem with to to get get those things out there so i think just just do it i think that's my yeah, if only we had some kind of national membership organisation that could um, that could unite everyone and you know communicate that to the general public. Um, yes, um, I think back to what I was saying before to sort of to re-embrace the sort of the broader industry, like not to narrow the role so that we're so specialist it's easy to manage without us. Protection of function isn't going to happen. There's no political appetite for it, and we need an act of parliament. So that one's a bit of a pipe dream. Um, so it's about make <laughs> making yourself um, useful and sort of speaking in a language that isn't just for other architects, as you were saying. Um, I think that's really, really important. And Harrod? Hello, thank you. Uh, yeah, so for me, I haven't heard loads of chat about being particular, particularly innovative today. So I feel like we, I'm also in, in a similar position having to find ways to innovate and to be positive in my own profession in development and, you know, finding a way to kind of keep current. So I think finding positivity in adversity and innovation, embracing technology to be more efficient so you can spend more time being creative um and i think yeah as i said earlier like spend more time with your clients face to face really get into grips with their brief because half the time they don't know what they want and it's imperative to get that right before you set sail on the project because it'll save you loads of time and pain actually i, I will go back to you very quickly Ellen. and just say does the history of the profession is it is it littered with innovation um, you know have, has, have architects led or are they always responding working there we yeah. go um history of innovation yes and no not really generally the less we know the more we innovate um and generally the more we know the more cautious um gothic cathedral architecture is a really good example it's architectural form driven by people who know how to build stuff with stone when you've got all the italian renaissance guys involved who didn't know anything about stone everything went crazy because they just said to the builder make it work and somehow it happened um, but I think we've lost that confidence and largely we've lost the confidence of the people paying the bills so we can't innovate really because our built form isn't from stuff that we can pay for. Um, none of us have got the money to do it so you've got to inspire enough confidence in your clients that they're going to back the innovation. Um, do we have a London practice forum for a member? Russell, can you pass it over? Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, this is nowhere near profound enough to, to wrap up the evening, so I hope somebody else will say something after this. But there is a train coming down the tracks um, which is going to fundamentally upend the profession, and that's the Building Safety Act. It's going to evolve the end of design and build as we know it. It's going to place architects at the heart of the construction process. Um, and a lot of us are going to fail. A lot of practices, I think, are going to fail, particularly if the outcome of the, uh, the Grenfell public inquiry um, is as critical of the profession as I think it might be. 
Um, there's going to be, and, and PI is going to be a, a, have a big impact. There's going to be a lot of practice go out of business because they're going to end up getting sued as an outcome of the uh, of the inquiry. So, there's in the next in the next couple of years, I think we're going to see a fundamental change in the in the profession, which for some of us will be amazing, um, and some of it's going to be terrible. But it's it's a whole new world that I don't think we've uh, quite got to grips with yet. Okay, sorry, Melissa, I thought you were signaling me, but... Wow, wow. Okay, well, I think on that note, on that note... So, oh, Steve, come on, man. Just to, just to follow up a little bit on, on what Russell says, you know, very quickly, okay. I won't go on, I won't go on. Um, it, 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 I think that rings true, and I think it is something that... Um, um, any architect who does feel as if they do that little bit more, not less. I mean, well, your point is good, but less is more. But we have to, um, like in America, you know, an architect will deal with costs. Yeah, they will look at costs, and we we we're very familiar with looking at costs and looking taking on CDM responsibilities and so on. And we kind of do more at that level. But maybe the trick is doing less on the constantly sort of colouring in kind of phase. Um, I think um, intent is key. I think if you're a strong architect, you should be able to sort of position yourself to get that fee. And it's a hard thing to do, but I think the intent is the key. No more competitions. No more uh, PQQ. Yeah. <laughs> Has he finished? Okay. <laughs> uh, if I could just have a massive round of applause, wait for it, not just for our speakers who were amazing, but also everyone who contributed and also everyone who listened. So that's all of you. I feel I shirked my responsibility this evening, Rob, so I apologise for leaving you up on your own. Um, we always like to carry on a little bit, you know, keep the conversation going. People break off into their own groups, so please feel free to uh, order more drinks and uh, hang around. We should be, uh, I think, open until about 11-ish, I think. So, um, yeah. And uh, keep an eye out for our upcoming talks. And there's the podcast, Negroni Talks, available on most platforms, not Spotify for some reason. And... And on our website, forward space, forward slash events. They're all there. They're all there. So, um, yeah, you can go back into the five years' worth of effort. So, uh, yeah. And we'd like to see you again here again. So um, thanks very much for coming. These things only work if you turn up. So thank you. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.forthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.